Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Data with episode 337 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here today to break down everything going on in the worlds of NXT and AEW and what was already a loaded show for you with NXT Heatwave results and AEW building to All Out became even bigger as some major news shaking up NXT and some pretty big decisions uh, regarding AEW's creative have made this an even more important show. As I noted, there is a ton still to get to today, but I would be remiss if I began any episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast without a reminder that this show is all about Defy. So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop that five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a written review. Let everyone know why you listen to the show and why you subscribe. Hopefully they will as well. Every time you leave a five-star review, we will read it live for you here on this podcast, just as we did Tuesday in our WWE episode. Speaking of, make sure you go back and listen to that if you have not already. One other promotional item, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That is where we drop new episode releases, occasionally drop some breaking wrestling news, and of course, comment live during the major programs here in the United States of America. Again, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. It will be very important to do so a couple weeks from now when we have three major shows all in one weekend. That is coming up Labor Day weekend. So follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can participate in polls, live shows, and of course, send in uh, questions for us to answer via DM and tweet at any point during the week. As I said, this is a loaded show. We have a ton to get to. I'm not going to waste any time off the top with additional banter. Let's get right into it. This week, we are going to start with NXT because it had a special show. For once, NXT had a special show, and I was about to say AEW did not, but it did as well. Uh, But in particular, NXT had a special show this week. Also, some major news surrounding that brand. So we're going to talk about NXT, Heatwave, and all of that major news off the top. AEW will take the second half of today's show. As always, every segment is detailed in our episode descriptions with timestamps so you can know where to jump around if you only want to listen to one or the other, but I always hope you listen to the entire show. So let's kick it off with NXT Heatwave from Tuesday along with big NXT news that dropped on Thursday. Heatwave on Tuesday, I thought it had a brilliant opening with Paul Heyman voicing the preview package. Heatwave, it's originally an ECW creation, So I thought this was an extremely nice touch, and I'm sure that Paul personally appreciated it. As far as an overview of the show, I think I can call it one of the oddest NXT specials that I can remember. There was some legitimately great wrestling on the show. It was very entertaining. Almost every single match on the card delivered one way or another. But almost every match also finished with a booking decision that confounded me one way or the other. And some of it may potentially be explained by the NXT news that is that transpired that ended up coming out Thursday. So 
perhaps some of the notes that I took and some of the things I'm going to say will be a little bit dated back to Tuesday's show. Of course, I will then come on the backside of that and explain how that may change now. But still, when watching the show Tuesday and looking at some of the finishes to matches and some of the booking decisions in terms of who won or who lost particular matches, I just found myself disappointed. Like, really good match. I'm excited. Oh my God, I can't wait for the finish. And then I'm like, oh, I really wish they didn't do it that way. So we're going to break all of that down one by one. And hopefully when I do that, you will be able to better understand why I feel that way. Let's start with the main event, the big match of the evening, the NXT, well, their big match of the evening. Mine, of course, was the North American Championship. But the main event of Heat Wave, NXT Championship on the line, Braun Breaker defending against JD McDonough. Braun broke some random box on his way to the ring. Can we just stop having this guy being forced to break something on his way into the ring for every big match? Like when he first broke that old black and gold NXT logo, it made sense. That was ending, 2.0 was happening. Okay, cool. I don't need this guy to like take a sledgehammer to something before every single match. It's like I roll my eyes even more than when Cody Rhodes smashed Triple H's throne during that AEW pay-per-view. It's enough. I know his name is Breaker. You don't have to set up a box that says something on it just so he can break it. It's ridiculous. Uh, Braun hit a standing moonsault. JD did a neckbreaker over the back of the top turnbuckle, which I thought was a really inventive spot. He struggled to get a crossface locked in. Braun hit a Frankensteiner for a 2.8. McDonough came back with a top rope Spanish fly and a brainbuster for a 2.9 false finish. JD missed a moonsault and Braun capitalized with an immediate spear, but JD rolled outside to avoid the fall. Braun hit a second spear and didn't cover. He turned around to see JD standing and smiling with his mouth filled with blood. And JD just kind of like put his arms out, allowing himself to get speared a third time before Braun hit the power slam to win in 14 minutes. This again is the first that we'll discuss on the show of a few finishes that just annoyed me from Heatwave. I know JD is this strange, sick character who likes pain and blood and all that. But why would you just expose yourself to take a spear and a finisher, despite clearly being well enough to stand and continue to compete? It's just nonsensical to me. Braun beating JD, obviously that was the right decision. McDonough hasn't been established for the United States audience to really not alone win the title, but even really be in this match in the first place. And you got to give him credit because the crowd has been dead for JD and McDonough since he debuted, but he really got them going with his action in the ring. So that's really positive. So I'm going to go with 3.75 stars and B plus for this match, but JD did most of the heavy lifting and there really wasn't too much from this to write home about. Did Braun look better coming out of this match than he did previously? No. Are you more excited about him as champion than you were coming into this match? No. And again, that's because this feud with McDonough, the prior feud with Joe Gacy, they've just been awful. Terrible storylines, bad storytelling, and match quality. You know, this one was really good, but the ones with Gacy weren't. So Braun Breaker was running really hot. I've said this on like three or four weeks in a row, coming out of the Champa feud, coming out of the Dolph Ziggler feud, and they've just cooled him off completely. And it's no one else's fault but creative. So after the bell for this match, Braun celebrating, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Tyler Bates' music hits. And he enters with the NXT UK Championship over his shoulder. He stood face-to-face with Breaker. They both held their titles in the air, the trite thing that 
Two champions always do. And Vic Joseph asked as NXT was going off the air, could worlds be colliding here on NXT? Now on its own, this was fine. But here's the problem inherent with this segment. NXT UK is literally in the middle of a tournament to crown a new champion after Isla Dragunov relinquished his title due to injury. We addressed this on the show a couple of weeks ago. I think the tournament is just entering its semifinals. There may even still be some first round matches that they're doing. Now, the thing has been taped already. So Bate is indeed the NXT UK champion in reality, but that is nowhere close to happening in kayfabe in terms of what we are seeing from the NXT UK product on Peacock and WWE Network on a week-to-week basis. So WWE just blatantly spoiled the result of its own freaking tournament. So obviously my thought was, what the hell are we doing here, people? Now there's some information coming in a moment that will clarify this. Hold on. And there was the obvious Worlds Collide mentioned by Joseph, which pointed to a special that would have made sense to come after Clash of the Castle, obviously. They're going to be featuring UK superstars. They have a UK show coming up. So why would you not do it the day after? And that's exactly what happened. Because WWE, on Thursday, right before we taped the show, announced that there will be a Worlds Collide show on Sunday, September 4th at 4 p.m. Eastern, the same day as AEW's All Out, but obviously ending before that show even begins. This backs up right against Clash at the Castle, as I just mentioned, where they're going to have a captive United Kingdom and European audience. So it makes sense from a scheduling standpoint to have that show, be able to promote Worlds Collide, and hopefully get a lot of people watching it and interested in NXT. I do not look at this, just because it's the same day as All Out, I do not look at it as a competitive move. I look at it as a strategic one, which I think is what it is. The question is what Worlds Collide is going to look like. Is it going to be champion versus champion matches? Or will it be filled with title versus title matches with the single men's, women's, and the tag team championship emerging individually with one champion as opposed to split an NXT and an NXT UK champion across all those divisions? Will the Heritage Cup be defended? Will that be utilized within the Worlds Collide situation? These are all important questions considering... There was even a bigger announcement on Thursday that a new brand, NXT Europe, will begin in 2023. Now, I did speak with a number of sources that give us good NXT information. I think you guys know we're pretty uh, up to date on what is really happening behind the scenes there. And they said that we will officially see the last vestiges of NXT UK at Worlds Collide. There will not be any new NXT UK tapings after that. And what is unknown, the one thing that they could not clarify for me, is what WWE is going to do about the UK title tournament. Will they throw those matches together on a special that airs either before Tuesday's show or at least before Worlds Collide? Are they going to stop airing NXT UK shows? Do they have enough content already taped to play out the rest of the title tournament? All of that remains to be seen. Basically, what this announcement means is this. On September 4th, NXT UK will be over as a brand. And given NXT Europe is not going to launch until 2023, for at least four months, possibly longer depending on that launch date, NXT UK talent will be featured on the US show 
and nowhere else. I mean, I know some of them have independent deals over in Europe that they can still do. But in terms of WWE, they will be on NXT uh, NXT in the United States. NXT UK is over. Now, in terms of my take on this move, it's a good decision. Uh, It always made sense to do NXT brands regionally by continent more than anything else, rather than locally. So Europe, Asia, Latin America, rather than United Kingdom, Japan, Mexico. And NXT UK, as it is, as the roster currently stands, there's already a ton of European talent on there beyond the United Kingdom. Not to mention wrestlers from Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. They will probably do live shows in numerous different countries and tape for TV at those shows. My only minor concern about the entire thing would be if WWE makes changes to what are the best looking set of championship titles in all of professional wrestling. The men's and women's NXT UK championship belts are gorgeous. They are literally my favorite looking titles in the world right now. Now, as long as they keep that aesthetic, I'll be happy. I presume the titles are going to be NXT Europe branded, but don't forget when NXT UK, before it began, that championship that was held by Tyler Bate and then Pete Dunne, Walter, etc., was the WWE UK championship. And on my old show, I used to complain about that because it was always part of NXT, yet it was branded WWE. Shawn Michaels, by the way, also on Thursday, was promoted to a vice president position within WWE. So given Sean will be overseeing this to some degree, obviously Triple H will as well, it could be pretty cool to see the old WWE European Championship return. But given the prestige associated with the men's and women's titles right now, we talk about how those both those titles, the UK titles, have really long reigns and great lineages without them changing hands a lot. I would really prefer them to remain separate through Worlds Collide and not be merged with the US titles at any point, eventually just transitioning into NXT Europe titles at the end of the day. Though I will say, and a minor spoiler alert, because we're going to talk about it in a moment, the idea of Maiko Satomura destroying Mandy Rose and holding both the NXT and NXT UK women's titles, that would pop me in a major way. Now, there's plenty to break down about this move. It just happened right before we taped today. We will address it further in the coming weeks but I did want to make sure that we talked about it to some degree before we continued on with the rest of the show, given there were a lot of NXT UK influences during Heatwave on Tuesday. So let's go ahead and continue with the NXT Heatwave results. We had the women's championship match I kind of just alluded to. Mandy Rose defending against Zoe Stark. Rose worked Stark's knee at the bell, slamming it into the announce table. Toxic Attraction got ejected after a commercial break with Nikita Lyons, who's going to be Zoe's tag team partner on SmackDown for the women's tournament, pulling them off the ring apron, fighting them to the backstage area. Rose had a nice flipping move to take Stark down. Zoe came back with her flipping go-to-sleep finisher, but she was unable to capitalize because she connected with the injured knee and sold it. Mandy rolled outside. She slammed Zoe's knee on the middle rope and attacked it further with it stuck between the middle and the bottom rope. Rose then unbuckled Stark's knee brace and missed on her pumped knee finisher. Stark got a couple near falls, and then ate a pump knee for a false finish at 2.8 as she became the first one to kick out of Mandy Rose's finisher in NXT. At least that's what commentary said. Mandy then fully unstrapped the knee brace from Stark, put it on her own leg, and hit another pump knee with the brace for the win in 11 minutes. So this was a fine enough match. 
on its own, right? It was, for me, one of the astounding finishes on the night. As far as I'm concerned, as a person who has watched wrestling for decades, Mandy Rose cheated in clear view of the referee. She literally used a weapon. If you are an individual that has a knee brace, an arm brace, a cast, whatever the case might be, if you have something like that on your person and you hit a knee or a forearm or whatever the case, it's legal because it's been approved in kayfabe to be part of your wrestling attire and the referee accepts it as such before the bell. However, if you were to remove your own knee brace and hit someone in the head with it, or if someone else is to take off that for you and put it on their body and use it, that is now a weapon. It is not legal when it's removed and put in someone else's hands like that. So the finish was blatant cheating, as far as I'm concerned, in clear view of the referee. I saw other people call it extremely smart and they haven't really seen something like that. And I think there's a reason you haven't seen something like that because in my opinion, at least, it's supposed to be illegal. So on its own, that finish bothered, bothered me. But even worse, why the fuck are we still being subjected to Mandy Rose as the NXT Women's Champion? It made no sense to keep the title on her here. The, her women, her, her partners, Toxic Attraction, they already lost the tag team titles. So why is Mandy Rose still the champion when Zoe Stark came back? She was getting a great reaction from the crowd, the NXT crowd. She's over. She's a legitimate great wrestler, someone who could take the title off Mandy, and it's believable, unlike a Cora Jade or a Roxanne Perez, who Roxanne, don't get me wrong, way better wrestler than Mandy Rose, but new to the brand. She just got there. So why would you put the title on her? Zoe Stark had the momentum. It was a perfect opportunity to change the title. So I just was bothered by both the finish and the booking decision here. But I will say, from a wrestling standpoint, this was a pretty decent match. And Mandy Rose, it was probably one of her top, what, three matches ever in WWE or NXT, maybe even better than that. So credit to her, credit to Zoe Stark for bringing Mandy through a positive match. But the ending pissed me off so much, I don't even know how to grade it. Like, is it a a three-point-something star match that I downgrade to a B-minus? For me, I had it around a three-star B-minus match. I downgraded it because of the finish. That gives me 2.75 stars and a C+. I was just really dumbfounded at the creative and the booking decisions here. And again, I fully understand if someone disagrees with my take on it, but that is how I see it as someone who has watched wrestling for decades. That was an illegal move. The referee did not call out. If he had and ruled a disqualification with Mandy retaining the title, I would have been way more accepting of it, even with it not being a clean finish. In this case, I just didn't like the way they did it. Let's get to what my main event of the show was, which was a North American Championship Carmelo Hayes against Giovanni Vinci. This opened the show. Vinci chopped the shit out of Hayes, popping the crowd huge. Melo hit the springboard backwards leg drop, which they're calling the fadeaway for a near fall. There was a bit of sloppiness here. After that, uh, Vinci hit a brain buster for a 2.5. Melo countered a powerbomb into a really innovative twisting cutter for a near fall. Vinci then did a sick Escalera crossbody onto Melo and Trick Williams outside two holy shit chants that were bleeped. They got to make these shows TV 14. Bleeping holy shit chants is like the worst production. I don't care about camera cuts and some of this other stuff. If you can't say shit on TV at, 
you know, nine o'clock at night, give me a break. Uh, he followed with a double jump springboard moonsault, but Trick put Mello's leg on the rope for a break. Vinci turned Mello inside out with a lariat. He went for a powerbomb. Trick jumped into the ring, so Vinci powerbombed Mello into Trick, then hit a last ride powerbomb on Trick. He went for another one on Mello, but Mello was able to hang on, flipping Vinci over for the one, two, three in 12 minutes. This was the definition of a banger. You could not ask for more action and excitement given the time that we got. The only thing you could really want is more time. And I do wish it got another five minutes because that would have taken it beyond the grade that I'm gonna give it. How about NXT like takes a break for some of the taped promos at, for just one week and let these guys cook a little bit. Give them a little bit more fire in the kitchen. Give them 17 minutes. This would have been maybe the NXT match of the year if it got a little bit more time. But still, extremely good. Vinci truly showed what he's capable of doing in the ring pretty much for the first time since the gimmick change. He's always been talented and always showed out, especially with Imperium. But since the gimmick change, Mello really allowed him to show his entire breadth of offense and what he's capable of accomplishing in the ring. It got to the point where I actually kind of wanted the title to change because that's how good Vinci was, even though, yes, Solo Sokoa is the right person to take it off Mello. And now he's out, you know, four to six weeks or however long they said. So we're going to have to wait for that. But this match was awesome. I went 4.25 stars and an A. Again, with more time, I would have gone higher. Let's move to Santos Escobar against Tony D'Angelo in a street fight. The stipulation here was Legado del Fantasma would be freed from D'Angelo if Escobar won, while Escobar would be forced to leave NXT on his own without Legado if he lost. Escobar got an extended entrance with Legado, and it felt with that entrance this is the sayonara. This is the final entrance, similar to the ones we used to get on takeovers. Escobar threw a chair at D'Angelo before the bell and did a huracarana into a chair for an early near fall. Stax took out Legato at ringside. D'Angelo did a vertical suplex onto a stack of chairs outside. Electro Lopez smacked Tony before Escobar hit a tope suicida through the corner. Stax was looking for a hitting crowbar, but Cruz del Toro blindsided him with it. Wild tried to throw Escobar brass knuckles, but they fell on the canvas. Lopez took the crowbar and shoved Escobar aside as she took a charge from D'Angelo for him. Now, when this happened, I said, wow, they have given Escobar a huge advantage here. All he needs to do is attack D'Angelo and win the match. Instead, D'Angelo low-blowed Escobar with a knee, grabbed the crowbar, but ate a huge kick to the face. They started fighting in the center of the ring, and there was really great camera work because they're fighting in the middle of the ring, and on one side of the ring apron is a crowbar, and the other side are brass knucks. And you could see it the entire time, even before they noticed. All of a sudden, they did notice while they were like still grabbing each other. They each simultaneously made a decision to separate and grab them. And then D'Angelo was able to swing first, hitting Escobar in the head with the crowbar and pinning him for the win in 13 or 14 minutes. I lost exact count there. The crowd loudly chanted Legato after the match all the way through to the next backstage segment, which had nothing to do with them, you could hear the crowd chanting Legato the entire time. Now, I saw a lot of people upset at the finish, but I thought it was extremely inventive from a creative standpoint. Remember, this was a street fight. It's a cartel versus a mafia match, right? This isn't a technical wrestling showcase. Weapons and BS and all that, that is what you should be expecting from a match like this. Having the guy who got the longer weapon, the crowbar, as opposed to a brass knuckles, which you would have to throw a punch to do it. So he has a longer reach. 
having a guy with that crowbar win what was basically a shootout in the finish is the right move. That is the person where if you're you're booking that finish, that is the person that has to come out on top. I thought it was a really good street fight that elicited great crowd energy. For me, there was a little bit too much interference. So I wanted more wrestling despite the fact that I liked it very much. So I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. I know some people just freaking loved this match. I really very much liked it, didn't love it. But my problems were twofold. Even though I liked the creativity of the finish here, First, Legato had a four-on-two advantage and lost. This includes Stax being hit over the head with a crowbar, and they didn't take any offense to that degree, yet they still weren't able to help in the finish. That was a problem for me. Second, Escobar is now clearly getting called up to the main roster without Legato. How anyone in creative for WWE, and I'm speaking to Triple H here, who hired all these guys, how anyone could watch NXT, see the insane crowd reaction that Legato gets as a faction every single time they are on TV and then only call up Escobar, that is insane to me. Even if Lopez isn't ready, you can leave her there or just make her a manager. Del Toro and Wild would be a great tag team on the main roster. They should have been up on the main roster one or two years ago. That is, they are a true tag team. They work together. Almost everything they do is in sync. They are perfect henchmen, if you want to call them that, for Santos Escobar, who's a great frontman for a faction. It just doesn't make sense. I don't get it. I'm extremely happy for Santos Escobar. We've been talking about him on this show since he debuted in that Cruiserweight Championship Tournament as Elio Del Fantasma. We've been talking about how great he is and how he could truly be WWE's next major Mexican star on the main roster. All of that is accurate. But what helps a guy like that get over beyond just being a good wrestler is having support behind him. And Legado Del Fantasma is that support. So I don't get this at all. I don't understand it. I don't even get what the plan is for the people who are now stuck in NXT. What the hell are Del Toro and Wild and Lopez going to do? Are they literally going to stay with the D'Angelo family and that's what they're going to do? It just, that doesn't make sense either. So I'm happy for Escobar. I liked the creative finish to the match, but in terms of the booking, I don't get it. And maybe it will all become clear soon. Maybe Escobar gets up there and then for the draft, Legato gets drafted up and they all come together anyway. And they just did it this way, really, more than anything else to make Tony D'Angelo look strong. I suppose that all of this, all of this complaining of mine could become moot in short order. But in terms of Tuesday night, it was confounding. Roxanne Perez fought Cora Jade. Roxy cut a promo basically saying their friendship dissolving was an unfortunate situation, but it wouldn't stop her from beating her former best friend. Perez ran down and attacked Jade at the bell, hitting a tope suicida right off the bat. She was wearing, it was odd, what looked like NXT 2.0 referee gear. It was like black and white stripes with splashes of color from NXT 2.0. I don't know why she would wear that as ring gear when there's a referee in the ring. If she was a guest referee, it would have made sense, but I digress. Uh, Roxy had a nice run with a Russian leg sweep for a near fall. Perez missed Pop Rocks. Jade came back with a pumped knee on the ropes and a twisting face buster for a near fall. Cora tried to use her weapon, but Roxy stole it. She decided then to drop the weapon. She was thinking about using it. 
She decided to drop it in the ring, which opened the door for Jade to hit a double underhook DDT onto the weapon for the win in 11 minutes. Now, this was a perfectly fine match with an absolutely absurd finish from a creative standpoint. And no, not because of the weapon. Roxy dropped it on the canvas and Cora didn't touch it before the DDT. So technically, she did not use it as an illegal object, but rather something around the ring that factors in. We have seen this happen before with championships. A championship winds up on the canvas. Someone does a move onto it. The referee doesn't really have a choice because they didn't purposely use it as an illegal object. It was just there. So the match continues. Same thing with steel steps, the announce table, all that. So I didn't care about that part. The problem was the referee in kayfabe didn't remove it from the ring. And Cora, after the bell, put it on Roxy's face as part of a cover. So she did use the weapon, technically not to hurt her, but to kind of keep her head to the canvas, which is illegal. You can't be doing that. And the referee saw that clear as day. The other issue is Roxanne Perez looked like an absolute moron by dropping the stick in the center of the ring and turning her back to her opponent. There is nothing worse in wrestling than a dumb baby face, even if it's a 19-year-old neophyte. So I thought the finish was idiotic, the way they constructed it, and I went 2.5 stars C overall for the match. I did like the work. I think they could do much better without that type of finish and given a little bit more time and a little bit more seasoning. Cora Jade, one of her best matches probably in NXT, still not at Roxanne Perez's level. Both of them have bright futures. I just really didn't like what we got here. Uh, Julius Creed backstage uh, apparently cut a promo over the weekend while he was in the Diamond Mine tape viewing room, video room, saying he studied footage from a couple weeks ago and would address it live on Heatwave. So Diamond Mine wound up in the ring without Ivy Nile. She was not there. Julius put over all the success they've had, but said Roderick Strong is trying to destroy the faction from within. Strong said the Creeds are one of the best teams in all of WWE, and he believes they could even compete with the Usos, but he denied that he did anything wrong. Julius said Roddy would stab them in the back. Brutus sided with his brother, and then Julius showed film of Strong accidentally hitting him with the pump knee during that match a couple weeks ago, which to me was an accident. It was pretty clear. However, Julius pointed out how Tony D'Angelo was in the corner signaling Strong by tapping on the canvas. Strong got cornered in the ring. He said he had no idea what they were talking about, and it looked like Diamond Mine was about to kind of eject him from the faction. However, out of nowhere, Gallus from NXT UK attacked the three young guys. And then Strong's in the corner looking at them, and you're thinking, oh, wow, Strong is a turncoat. He's going to become their manager. Instead, Gallus also attacked Strong, and all four guys were laid out in the middle of the ring. Some fans were confused, a couple chanted, and the Gallus theme, which by the way is a banger, played with the green light kind of assuming uh, the entire ring. Now, this has been a slow burn story. It got pretty convoluted with the Gallus attack, especially because they also took out Strong. Now, maybe they're going to do a six-man and Strong turns on Diamond Mine in that match and sides with Gallus. The Gallus guys are good, but it's also a move that fits way better in black and gold NXT and NXT UK and not really 2.0. So the whole thing kind of came across without resolution, but it still does have my curiosity. If you recall, last week on NXT and during our NXT wrap-up, we pointed this out, that Diamond Mine was writhing around on the canvas in a green light as part of Apollo Crews' foresight. You know, they zoomed into his eye. It showed that he saw that. 
he was able to project that for the future. And then it kind of zoomed out and you were kind of meant to forget about it, right? So clearly, Cruz saw this coming and Cruz was working with the Diamond Mine guys. He was watching film with them, but he never gave them a heads up about it or anything like that. So that whole thing is extremely curious. And and by the way, that Apollo Crews gimmick, I don't even know what kind of legs it has. Where do you take someone who has visions of the future like that? It's just very odd for a guy who probably didn't need that to get over to now have that gimmick. Although this version of it is better than the one where he was in the coffee shop and saw someone harassing a waitress. And we're not going to go over that again. So anyway, that happened. Uh, Briggs and Jensen later were cutting a promo when Gallus interrupted, stating that they wanted the NXT UK tag team titles back and they issued a challenge. They agreed to fight next week as securities kept them separated. That was fine. Briggs and Jensen as NXT UK champions. It has never made sense from the jump. So we'll get that match next week. And I hope Gallus just wins the titles. Grayson Waller said Apollo Crews is selfish and trying to take over NXT. He said next week is the debut of the Grayson Waller Effect talk show with Cruz as his first invited guest. He also insulted the interviewer a few times. Now, giving Waller a talk show, it's a pretty smart move because the guy does command the mic really well, but it is strange that this guy has not been a factor in the ring recently. Indy Hartwell was chatting up Caden Carter and Casey Catanzaro backstage. I'm sorry, Katana Chance backstage, congratulating them on winning the titles. When a messenger came up with a letter, Indy opened it to reveal a drawing from Dexter Loomis, and she swooned over it. Suddenly, Blair Davenport, the former Bea Priestley, she grabbed it from her and ripped it in half, saying she was going after the women's championship. Davenport, great addition from NXT UK, but the last time I saw her over there, she was contending for the NXT UK women's title, trying to become the number one contender. So again, with everything that's happening, I don't know what this means. The Loomis reference popped me. It was smart. And given we now have Loomis back and he's reconnecting with Indy, and there's rumors of Johnny Gargano maybe being signed to the WWE main roster. And Vince McMahon is gone, which means Theory doesn't have any direction. It sure seems like there's at least the possibility that the way is something that could go down on the main roster. And of course, as one of the biggest way fans that has ever existed, that would pop me massively. Tiffany Stratton said she's done with Wendy Chu, while Chu said she's tired of dealing with Stratton. They agreed to do a lights out match next week, which is basically a street fight without the bright lights of NXT. They're going to be dimmed. That could be an improvement given the NXT set makes me nauseous on occasion. Uh, This is probably Stratton's best promo yet. Chu was better than her here too. So both of them really good on the mic. I like both of them. I wasn't really excited for a rematch at first. Now I am. I think the gimmick is a really smart move. Mr. Stone put over Von Wagner for surviving the false count anywhere match while Sobisakoa won, but is now injured and on the shelf. Wagner said anyone smaller or weaker will not survive him. The pairing with Stone, it's worked as far as I'm concerned, but I would rather Stone do 95 or 100% of the talking as opposed to 50%. Wagner should speak as little as possible. And lastly here, Quincy Elliott wearing a Bratz shirt said he's bringing all this to NXT. He said he's never struggled being different because he owns it and is it. He said, unlike other superstars, he is the super diva. And I think this guy has been on NXT level up for a few matches. I haven't seen him yet. This was fine as a first promo. Seems confident. Apparently his entrance for NXT level up, he comes out riding a scooter and rides around the ring and the fans love it. So I presume whenever he does have his debut match, he'll get a nice pop from the crowd, which hopefully will get him over with fans on TV. So 
That is the wrap up from NXT. As I said, a lot happened this week. We had a ton to talk about. And really, there's a lot of questions still to be answered. What's going to happen with Worlds Collide? What's going to happen with the NXT UK Championships? All of them, um, the Heritage Cup. We don't have these answers. I do assume next week on NXT Tuesday night, we will get a lot of the answers. So with that, let's move over to this past week in AEW where there are no shortage of things to discuss. Big news, big match bookings. Let's get right to it. We're going to break down Dynamite and Rampage together by storyline as always. On Dynamite, CM Punk opened the show by challenging Hangman Adam Page to a rematch. Commentary asked whether Punk was even cleared and whether Page was even there. He didn't answer the challenge, so Punk called it coward shit instead of cowboy shit and said his apology needed to be as strong as his offense. Punk said he's the real champion and John Moxley has always been the number two. Not only that, he was the third best guy in his own group, referring to The Shield, and even now, referring to the Blackpool Combat Club. Punk said Eddie Kingston is the third best Eddie and second best Kingston he's ever fought. Punk said he's looking forward to testing himself against Mox, but noted he won't be the first John he's beat for a title in Chicago. And he's not better than that John either, obviously, in both cases, referring to Cena. Uh, Mox's music hit, but Punk kept talking and acting up in the ring, considering how long it takes for Moxley to get to the ring. Mox mocked Punk's pipe bomb, said his body can't cash his mouth's checks, and that he's not the best in the world. He's rarely the best wrestler in catering. Mox said their belts don't mean shit until they fight. He said he's the heart and soul of AEW. Punk said that's fine. He's the dollars and cents. Mox said Punk only came to AEW because he ran out of money, and then he got in his face. Punk said he's afraid to touch Mox because he'll just start bleeding. Then they started hockey fighting when six relatively unimpressive local security guys ran into the ring and pretty easily separated them. About 40 minutes later, Mox attacked Tony Nese as he was making a ring entrance, stormed to the ring, and demanded Punk come out to fight. This time, a dozen people, including Claudio Castagnoli and Wheeler Yuta, they all stopped the brawl before it started. This was far more believable of a breakup than the first one. So we're going to break this down in parts here. The opening segment was outstanding until the spot with the security kind of ended it with a whimper. The crowd was unsure of how to react to the vast majority of Punk's promo because they love him, but he was also shitting on a lot of their favorites. I thought he killed it. Punk had some iffy promos over that last stretch of time he was on TV, but this one was pitch perfect in every way. He intrigued with the hangman line, but it also did make Page look pretty awful, both inside and outside of kayfabe. Calling him out that way, knowing he wasn't coming down to the ring, was a bad look both ways. Clearly, Punk planned this promo, given all of the parallels with the names and the numbers and all that, and that means he planned to do this also. Now, whether that was part of accepted storyline or not from Tony Khan, that remains to be seen, but it did make Page look bad, like I said, in kayfabe and reality. Now, AEW can save this if it wasn't planned by setting up a feud either after All Out, and they could do that whether Punk is champion or not, unless it was completely done with their knowledge, which it just didn't seem to be the case given everyone's reaction afterward. Dave Meltzer, Wrestling Observer, um, Mike Johnson, PW Insider, both of them have reported that no one knew Punk was going to say those things about Hangman, and that was not part of the plan. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. AEW does like blurring the reality and kayfabe lines, but it did seem out of left field in the moment. Now, again, 
Punk is one of the best in the world on the mic. So that could just be him, you know, delivering the promo in that particular way to make it seem like it was real. But this does bring up certainly questions about if it wasn't planned, whether Punk should have complete freedom on the mic like AEW clearly gives him. Anyway, uh, the lines about Mox were not only fun, but balls on accurate. Adding the Kingston and Cena stuff on top of that was great. It's a situation where the veiled WWE references are appropriate because you're referring to stuff that has happened in wrestling history. It is not a way of demeaning the competition or throwing shade at what a person did previously. They're just saying, hey, we used to work together and all of these things are applicable to our current storyline. And by the way, Mox being the third best member of the Shield, it's continuity from a promo in 2013 that I actually tweeted. So go to our profile on Twitter at Getting Overcast, watch that promo, and that will fill this in for you. Punk, I thought, constructed and executed this extremely well. Mox's retorts were really good also, especially the running out of money line. He just kind of lacked as much of a strong belief behind his words as Punk did. My only other issue besides the end of the segment was the overuse of the word shit. I like that they can say it, but you don't need to say it a dozen times in a single promo segment. You can say it twice or three times and let it go. It felt like every other word coming out of these guys' mouths was shit. It was overdone. You don't need to do it. Anyway, it was an extremely hot start to Dynamite overall. And like I said, the vast majority of this was great. Now, before the main event, AEW announced that the CM Punk John Moxley title unification match will not be held at All Out, but rather next week on Dynamite from Cleveland. This is obviously a surprise, and it leads me to believe this is going to be a rare occasion where we don't get a legitimate finish to the match. They're angst for each other on Dynamite. It could lead to them going beyond what AEW referees deem acceptable, and that could be a no contest or a double disqualification. Another option is a time limit draw. I think you only get 30 minutes on TV, but you get 60 on pay-per-views, so they could do a 30-minute draw and redo the match on pay-per-view. Chris pointed out to me, Chris Vanini, our co-host, he pointed out that given Punk's promo, Hangman could also get involved and create a triple threat situation. That's possible, but there's only going to be two weeks until All Out, and Hangman is cooler than cool right now. The dude is ice cold. He has not done a single meaningful thing since dropping the AEW championship. And even though he may be number one in the rankings, he doesn't really deserve to be. The guy is a pure white meat baby face, and he's basically been an occasional backstage character for months. This is one of AEW's awful booking tendencies, not keeping people relevant. Now, I am personally of the belief that Johnny Gargano is headed back to WWE. But given the location in Cleveland, there's at least the possibility of running this match clean, Gargano making a debut in his hometown afterward, and challenging, let's say, Punk for All Out, given All Out, again, is in Chicago. I doubt that's going to happen. The MJF option is also out there. MJF could interfere in this spot, making a really big return in a big city, and he could wind up with a title match. There's a number of different options, but in the end, I don't see why you would not put your biggest possible match with your top two needle movers on your pay-per-view. So in terms of a prediction, it's what I said at first, a no contest, a time limit draw, something like that to create a stipulation rematch for All Out. Something to make it feel notably epic. Maybe the AEW version of a lights out match or no holds barred or whatever the case might be. I, first Blood could be another option, although Mox 
would probably accidentally bleed 30 seconds into the match, even if he didn't blade. My point is, I think this match is going to happen twice. Let's not forget, I think the last time there was All Out, we had Kenny Omega and Christian Cage for the Impact title, and then Kenny Omega and Christian Cage again for the AEW title at the pay-per-view. So there is precedent to that. On Dynamite, the Young Bucks and a mystery partner fought Andrade El Idolo, Roosh, and Dragon Lee in the trios tournament. The mystery partner was purposely not a well-kept secret, and it was indeed Kenny Omega making his return after nearly 250 days away from the ring. He got the long announcement from Justin Roberts, and he was back with Don Callis and Michael Nakazawa. It was notable to me that Omega wore a black dry fit shirt with an athletic shoulder strap. I presume the shirt was necessary to prevent chafing, but I did find it a little odd that he's coming back to the ring and wearing that shoulder strap like that. I guess it's not the the worst thing in the world. Like you see people who have torn ACLs, they wear knee braces for the remainder of their careers. Tegan Knox, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Zoe Stark, as of right now, are notable um, people who currently do this or or that we know obviously did it. Um, so maybe Omega needs to wear this for the next year until it's 1000% healthy, or maybe he's gonna wear it forever. But it was odd to see a guy, especially given the way he performed in the match, we're gonna talk about that in a moment, a guy who is like, when you see Kenny Omega, Kazuchika Okada, Brian Danielson, you're like, these are the best wrestlers in the world. They're gonna be perfect. They should look the way they always look. So to see him look different, it kind of, to me at least, as a viewer, was notable. Now, Omega did botch early in the match, and it was interesting because I wasn't sure whether it was purposeful to show ring rust to the crowd or because he literally had ring rust. Omega is not someone who is ever less than perfect. You know what I mean? So to me, it kind of blurred the line between fantasy and reality, kayfabe and reality, is does this guy actually have ring rust or is he just trying to show that for storytelling reasons? Anyway, there was a good triple team work going both ways. Omega looked like himself hitting three Snapdragon suplexes. Lee got powerbombed into the corner, eating two super kicks simultaneously. Omega twice tried his signature tope only to be stopped. He also sold an injured left knee. Roosh and Jose sat Omega atop a barricade so Lee could hit a ridiculous tope neckbreaker onto him over the barricade. And he seemingly kicked a fan in the head or shoulder on the landing but it looked great. Andrade then literally had to drag him back in the ring. Andrade hit a start and stop moonsault for a near fall, plus a hammerlock DDT with a choreographed broken fall. Omega hit a pump knee and V-trigger on Lee, who acted knocked out cold. The Bucks then stopped Andrade and Roosh as Omega hit kind of an awkward one-winged angel for the win. Omega gripped Lee's hand after the belly hugged him on the canvas. When the Elite left, Andrade hit Lee with a hammerlock DDT and dynamite cut off before we could get a second to understand it. His mask, by the way, Dragon Lee, came off when Andrade hit the hammerlock DDT. So off the top, it's great that Omega is back. He's one of the best wrestlers in the world. AEW is better when he's part of the product. He raises the rent every single time. But this was kind of an inauspicious return. Like, if this was all kayfabe in terms of ring rust, lack of fitness and such, then Omega did an incredible job working my ass. But it did seem like he wasn't completely ready to be back in the ring. It was similar to how Seth Rollins looked when he came back from that serious knee injury a few years ago. It took him a while to get back to being his normal self, and Kenny Omega had way more than one thing repaired on his body. I assume this is the same deal with Omega. It's not really his fault. It's not AEW's fault either, because they held off this trios tournament until he was healthy, until he was cleared to participate. But it was absolutely noticeable that Omega was not his normal self. 
Now, because so much of this match was about Omega, and because he was unable to be the Omega that we expected, the match itself did suffer a little bit. There were some fun spots. These six, though, should be able to do better altogether. The tope over the barricade, it was insane from an execution standpoint. But it was also absurd to put fans at risk like that, even though the wrestlers did pull up the barricade to create space. How about just do a different move? And the post-match attack, it made sense because Lee took the fall. He also shook the Young Bucks' hands before the match. But it also came out of nowhere with no lead up whatsoever, at least none that I know about. So I'm going to go ahead and say like 3.5 stars B for the match. Good, entertaining, not great by any means. On Rampage, Brian Danielson opened the show saying he will never willfully stop wrestling and Daniel Garcia certainly won't be the one to end his career. Garcia said Danielson is his hero, but that won't stop him from ending his career, making Garcia the Dragon Slayer and the greatest technical sports entertainer. Brian said the sports entertainment bullshit pisses him off and Garcia can follow him to be the best technical wrestler or stay in the lane he's in. It was a really good promo segment. I, it sounded to me like it was really obvious and it transpired on on Wednesday, but the storyline might be Danielson beating Garcia and convincing him to leave the Jericho Appreciation Society for the Blackpool Combat Club. And on Friday when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's a really smart angle. I would love to see it. So we moved to Wednesday. Danielson, Garcia, best two out of three falls. Ricky the Dragon Steamboat was the special guest timekeeper because of the HBO House of the Dragon promotion. Danielson ate a pile driver where it looked like his entire head was below Garcia's legs. Garcia then put him in a dragon sleeper and knocked him out cold for the first fall after 10 minutes. Brian bladed during commercial. Garcia went for the dragon sleeper again, but Danielson kind of moved him over for a pinfall after 15 minutes total. I thought it was a very weak second fall. Brian took Garcia off the ropes with a German suplex and hit a missile dropkick plus a tope suicida through the corner. Garcia then bladed as Danielson was selling a count out at ringside. After a third commercial, they countered submissions on the canvas. Danielson no-sold a corner dropkick before Garcia hit Brian's own psycho knee for a near fall. Brian stomped Garcia, so he reversed it and did the same. Danielson got him in a second label lock, delivering hammer elbows until Garcia was finally knocked out cold for the second and final fall for him, for Danielson, third overall, after 26 minutes. Brian extended his hand after the bell, but as Garcia went to shake it, Chris Jericho ran down from commentary to attack Brian from behind. Garcia pushed Jericho off, and slapped his hand out of his face as Jericho screamed at him and left the ring with fans chanting, you're a wrestler. Backstage, Jericho said he wanted a face-to-face with Garcia to find out what side he's on. Steamboat said Garcia didn't need them, and Danielson would be a better mentor for Garcia. Now, I wanted to love this match, and it was definitely entertaining when it was on my full screen. Three commercial breaks are going to impede any match, but especially so when they take up 45% of a match's entire time. And especially when you have that many commercial breaks during a match that has three different falls. I know AEW needed to make up commercial time after that opening promo segment went like 18 or 20 minutes. So I understood why this match had so many commercials, but it was the entirely wrong spot to do it. What they should have done is just done a different segment, gone to commercial, and then come back from that segment with the start of the match, only allowing one or two commercials to interrupt the entire thing. The wrestling was exceptional, but given all the starts and stops, plus the head trauma stuff, I can't really go higher than four stars and an A minus. It should have been better. Separately, I completely disagree with the booking of allowing Garcia to get that first fall. Danielson should have won this 2-0. 
barely waking up from the sleeper, converting the first one, and then knocking out Garcia himself later. Two falls instead of three would have made the match flow better, even with the commercials. And Garcia was already put over from beating Danielson once. He did not need to do it again. As far as what this means going forward, you know, they're going to do the Jericho Garcia face to face in the ring next week, but I wouldn't be surprised if the booking ends up being like the equivalent of Dominic on a pole, uh, Chris Jericho against Brian Danielson at All Out with Daniel Garcia going to the winner or being allowed to leave Jericho Appreciation Society for Blackpool Combat Club. Maybe they say something like he's under contract with him. I don't know exactly what they're going to do, but it does feel to me like that is the match they're setting up. Another option, of course, is Danielson and Garcia against two JAS members. So they could go that way. On Dynamite, Powerhouse Hobbs said the way Ricky Starks acted made it clear he was okay with losing. He said Starks hid behind his back while it was his job to ensure Starks didn't lose his title, but he even screwed that up. Hobbs said he was going to go after Starks, but not just him, the factory as well. Solid promo from a guy who really doesn't speak much, explained the turn really well. It really just should have come last week. Why did we wait two weeks for this when we could have already got this explanation? And the whole factory aspect of it, I still don't really understand that. On Rampage, Swerve and Our Glory addressed Andrade El Idolo, who wanted Private Party to challenge for the tag team titles. They said they'd give them a match since no ranked team will challenge them. They also shared a water bottle, which was very odd. Now, it's nice that they addressed the lack of real challengers, but that's entirely the fault of booking. It's pathetic that they actually had to point this out to make the booking make sense. And then Wednesday, backstage at Dynamite, Private Party bragged that they were now the number five tag team. Where the hell did that come from? Obviously convenient as these rankings always are for AEW. Swerve told them respect their elders and Keith Lee didn't like their breath, so he offered them gum. That's all we got. I just want Swerve and our glory to be prominent tag team champions. And right now they feel like an afterthought. On Dynamite, Jungle Boy came out for a promo and talked about chasing Christian Cage, but not getting his hands on him. He said Christian should man up and face him at all out. Then he cut himself off before calling him a pussy again. The crowd was bored senseless by this promo and even gave him what chance that stopped Jungle Boy cold in his tracks, he reacted to them. Christian came out, he denied the challenge, entered the ring and said he didn't want to fight, but rather fix their relationship and help him succeed. Fans chanted bullshit. Christian said they're family, he loves him and he considers him like a son. Jungle Boy faked a hug and attacked him. Christian kicked him in the balls outside and threw him into the barricade. But Jungle Boy reversed him into the steel steps, stomped Christian's arm on the steps and banged his head backwards onto the steps. As I've said for months now, this feud has completely lost me. Jungle Boy's promo was awful, but I will say the attack was well done and it did get a little bit of my interest back. Again, the match is gonna be good. The build sucks. On Rampage, we had a triple A mixed tag team championship match. Sammy Guevara and Ty Mello, the former Ty Conti, against Dante, Martin, and Sky Blue. You may be asking yourselves, where did these titles come from? Why is this match on AEW TV? Why are Martin and Blue challenging for the titles? Don't worry. I was asking myself those same questions. Ty hit a DDT on Martin. Sky hit a Huracrana on Sammy. Then Mello hit the Ty KO for the win. It had its moments. I didn't even know these guys had a championship. That's just the truth. On Dynamite, Sanjay Dutt cut some type of manic promo. I barely understood what the guy was saying. Apparently, he challenged Wardlow and FTR to a trios match against him, Jay Lethal, and Satnam Singh. At All Out. If I heard that right, seriously, what the fuck is this booking? You have the hottest tag team in the world right now, not defending any of their titles. By the way, they have the ROH titles. 
that's within the AEW universe they can defend. They're not defending any of their titles. They're not challenging for the AEW tag team titles as the number one ranked contenders, by the way, with a huge pay-per-view coming up. And they're not even fighting a quality opponent and a big show. Then you have Wardlow, the single hottest babyface in the company coming out of the last pay-per-view. He doesn't have a new opponent. He's still not defending his TNT title against anyone new. These are three ultra-hot babyfaces who are instead in a six-man match where two of their three opponents are Sanjay Dutt and Satnam Singh. Are they really doing this entire booking with FTR and Wardlow just so Wardlow can powerbomb Singh in a situation where Singh doesn't have to otherwise wrestle because he sucks in the ring? If you want to do this, do it on a go-home dynamite or a go-home rampage and let someone challenge for the titles at all out. This is absolute trash booking. I don't even know how this is possible. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. I am pissed off. I'm pissed to the highest level of pissivity. I was really trying to get through the show quick and not use sound drops, but I did not have a choice. Awful, awful booking. On Dynamite, Tony Storm fought Kylan King. This match went to commercial a minute after the first bell. Storm hit the hip attack plus a tornado DDT and a pendulum DDT for the win. Thunder Rosa watched and clapped backstage, and their match, Rosa against Storm 2, was set for All Out. There was nothing to this match. I always like when a wrestler beats a low-card wrestler opponent without using their finisher, so I did like that. But this was the only women's segment on the entire show, and Storm fought a pay-per-appearance wrestler. Why won't AEW use its active women's roster? It just doesn't make sense. On Rampage, Parker Bordeaux fought Sunny Kiss. This was Sunny's first TV match in two years. No exaggeration. Parker hit a choke slam and a lifted Uranagi slam for the win in a squash. Sunny has now had one minute and 26 seconds of TV time across their last two matches. On Rampage, Orange Cassidy fought Ari Davari. Davari kept trying to get Orange to join the Trustbusters. He countered an orange punch into a Uranagi for a near fall. Orange hit a tornado DDT and then a diving DDT for a near fall. Orange hit a tope suicida into the Trustbusters at ringside and some flip slam out of the corner for another near fall. Finally, he hit the orange punch for the win. Some good wrestling in this one. Slim J, whoever the hell that is, attacked after the bell. He got thrown outside. Parker then leveled best friends and splashed them in the corners. Orange stood across from him. When Sonny ran down, teased helping Orange and instead low blowed him before Parker hit the same Uranagi style slam again. So Sonny is now part of the Trustbusters, a faction that belongs on AEW Dark, but is being featured all over Rampage for some reason. They basically took this thing, they put it together to get a trio, uh, presumably for the trio's tournament when they had all this other talent on the roster that they decided not to use. Was any of this good? The match was entertaining, the second one. Other than that, I just could not care less about it. On Rampage, Tony Schiavone put over Hook for his, quote, incredible AEW debut as part of an interview Hook said one word, yup, agreeing that the FTW title is always an open challenge. And he agreed to that before Zach Clayton entered, saying he would take the title off him and bring it back to New Jersey. Clayton, by the way, is the husband of Wow from the Jersey Shore, dated references for you there. AEW is clearly doing this for publicity reasons. And that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. If this was anyone with name recognition, anyone notable, he's a D-level name. He's the husband of a C-level, you know, celebrity. 
AEW doesn't have time for its actual signed performers, but they're giving this guy, even though it's unsanctioned, a title match on live TV or on TV. What the hell is going on with their booking right now? On a positive note, Zach was actually really solid on the mic. And that legitimately surprised me that this guy could cut a promo given he barely speaks on Jersey Shore. I actually still watch that show because it's dumb TV that you can watch while you're working late at night. But the guy never speaks and he never says anything legitimate on Jersey Shore. Yet here he is with a mic cutting a very good promo against Hook. Also, how the hell has Hook's debut been incredible? Is he completely over with the crowd? Yes, he is. No one is questioning that, but that's all like organic within AEW. He's a marginal wrestler right now. Almost all of his matches are exceptionally short. He had one that was pretty decent. Look, I like the guy a lot. I actually like Hook. I like the gimmick, the presentation, all of it. Would I describe him as incredible? No, I would not do that. And lastly, uh, we have the Gun Club storyline on Rampage Gun Club against Beardhausen. Eric Redbeard teamed with Danhausen again someone unsigned on AEW TV instead of actual wrestlers in the company. Uh, Billy Gunn pulled down the top rope as they attempted a finisher. Danhausen ate a famouser in the finish. Billy admonished his sons for not doing enough, a good enough job in the match. He said he missed the acclaimed, but they could prove themselves with a match on Wednesday. Then Stokely Hathaway tried but failed to hand them a business card out of the crowd. So on Dynamite, that match was Gun Club against Varsity Blondes. Colton Gunn immediately hit the Colt 45 for a squash win in like 30 seconds, maybe. Billy got a mic. He said, that's what I wanted. I'm super proud of you guys. They all hugged. At that moment, Stoke came out to the stage. The club attacked their father with Billy taking a bump on a thrown punch that completely missed him. It hit air and the guy fell down. The acclaimed then made the save. They scissored Billy and hugged him. It would be nice to get some clarity on what Stoke is doing because the way this group is being constructed is really strange. He's adding a bunch of random male wrestlers. He already has Jade Cargill and the baddies. He's not speaking for any of them. So again, the best thing about Stokely Hathaway is his promo ability and his ability to sell matches. And they just have him adding a bunch of people to the stable without any follow-up on any of them. Ethan Page, for example, what's He signed and what's happening now? He hasn't had a match, he hasn't spoken, nothing's happened. So they're just adding people, adding, adding people and nothing's developing out of it. Now I'm sure they will obviously show us what it's meant to be, but it just seems like this never ending thing with random people joining him, none of them notably exciting. And what is the end result? What's the, if if this guy has eight, men and four women under his brand, let's say. What's the benefit of that? What is the point of that faction? Again, maybe we'll find out. Right now, it's just confusing. I did pop a little bit for the scissoring. I can't believe I just said that. Uh, But also squashing the Varsity Blondes. It just, doing it that way felt unnecessary. Why not have a four-minute match and let them win? Uh, Again, these are people on your roster. Treat them better than you would treat the people who aren't on your roster that get to go and have nine, 10 minute matches and contend for titles. It's just very odd booking as far as I'm concerned. So that is really it from AEW. Uh, Like I said, a newsworthy show, NXT AEW. We went over a lot, a lot of questions left unanswered that hopefully will be filled in across the coming weeks on both brands. And now we look ahead, right? AEW All Out is coming September 4th in the evening. NXT 
Worlds Collide Sunday afternoon in the United States, uh, 4 p.m. right before that. So both shows, or right now both brands, I should say, building two big shows, obviously all out, bigger than Worlds Collide, but Worlds Collide could certainly make a significant impact on what is going to go forward uh, in terms of NXT and really a lot of the NXT UK wrestlers and performers. So we obviously will be talking more about both of those things in the coming weeks right here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. As far as today's show, that's it. This show is in the books. So allow me to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. Be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a written review. Let everyone know why you listen to the show and why you subscribe. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That is it for today. We will be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel with your next NXT and AEW episode. And of course, between now and then, our next WWE episode coming on Tuesday. Thank you all for listening. The Silver King is now signing off, leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.